Hey, this is Eric Johnson, and you are listening to Iron City Rocks. Hi, I'm Alan Croft from Dire Straits, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hi, this is John Ilsley from Dire Straits, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Oh! episode 482 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing the best rock, hard rock, and heavy metal talk on the net. Episode 482, we have three very special guests we have joining us from the Bandire Straits. John Ilsley will be here to talk about his new book, his new record, uh, and some other cool stuff. We are also joined by Andy Timmons, a solo guitarist extraordinaire, amazing musician you may remember him from his time in danger danger and then finally joining us for what is uh thankfully and hopefully back to an annual occurrence we have damian darlington here to talk about his show with Britt floyd coming to pittsburgh in the month of april so first we're going to talk to john ilsley he's got a book out now that's been out for a little while uh, a couple months it's called my life in dire straits by john ilsley uh, it's got a forward written by mr mark knopfler John, bass player for Dire Straits on all the albums. Uh, so we get into talking about some Dire Straits, about the book, uh, the process of writing the book. Uh, and he also has a new album called Eight, which is available, just released earlier this month. So we're going to talk about all that stuff. So let's uh, get into that interview without any further ado. Straits we have on the line. John Ilsley, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well, thank you. It is a pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. Um, you've got a book out now called My Life in Dire Straits uh, with a forward by a good friend and longtime bandmate, Mark Knopfler. Um, John, what, what kind of made this the, the right time to kind of sit down and do this project? Well, it would be easy to say um, the pandemic but um, yeah. I, I, a little bit I of time actually, on your hand, yeah. Well, exactly right. Yes, like a lot of other people. But um, um, I, an agent uh, who I didn't know came to see one of my shows. Um, two, oh God, it must be two and a half, two years ago. And um, when I was talking about the band and, you know, talking about, the, you know, and then playing some songs acoustically and stuff. And so she she... She ended up sitting next to me at a charity event a week or two later, and she said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I, and I said, well, why are you asking me that? She said, well, I'm a literary agent, and I think you should write a book, because what I heard the other night is really worth putting down, and I'm sure you've got lots of other stories to tell. So after a number of conversations, and also I had a word with Mark first, and I said, look, I've been, I've been asked to write a book about us. What do you think? And he said, oh, crikey, why do you want to bother doing that? <laughs> yeah. So I said, well, I think it needs, I think this story needs telling. I think we've had quite an interesting life, you and I, and it gives me a chance to celebrate not just you and me and the rest of the musicians that we're involved with, but all the other people that, that as a consequence of being with a big rock and roll band, um, hardly ever get a mention. And, I, and I, so I said, I'm, I think I, I'm going to put it together. And if you read it and you don't like it, it won't come out. And he said, fair enough. So he read it, and then he said, um, oh, um, I'll do the forward. Well, <laughs> so, that's, a, that's a good endorsement. Exactly. So I, I, I figured that was okay. Well, because I had to clear it with him first, because um, uh, for want of a better expression, because, you know, it's really about us and principally a lot about him as well and his writing sure. and 
recording and such like. So it just felt right to have that kind of conversation before I actually even went into before we went into print. Yeah, is it? I mean, is it weird to kind of look back on your life? Were you a, a person who kept a journal, or you know, how, how do you go back and kind of, you know, obviously some of the stories you remember, people get kind of revisionist history on things. Were there some things that you kind of scribbled along the way, or, or was this sort of a, here's what I remember sort of thing? Well, it was a mixture of things actually. I I, I do I do write things down, um, not all the time in a diary, and but so I had to refer to those a little bit. But um, once I'd started thinking about it and how to approach the book um, in a chronological sense, it was easier uh, because. Um, I really wanted to sh show what it was like for a young sort of, you know, middle class boy from Leicestershire, which is not the most as inspiring place on the planet in, sure. <laughs> in, in the UK, how that can, how the love of music can make you want to do uh, something uh, which ends up being, uh, you know, uh, very satisfying and, and quite remarkable, really. Um, so it was really... Um, uh oh gosh i don't really it's a difficult question to answer straightforwardly to be honest um and uh anyway ask ask me another question and we'll see if we can get <laughs> no problem was was this something you did on your own as far as writing i know a lot of you know kind of the rock star autobiographies it's you know person you've heard of with the small print somebody who kind of did all the writing was this something that you kind of did to tape and someone else worked with you to write it out or well, was this something you um, just put your hands on a keyboard and went for it? No, that was a that was a combination of things. Um, a friend of mine um, actually is a professional ghostwriter. Okay, and he knew absolutely nothing about music, so that I thought was a good place to start. Sure. And um, but the most the most interesting thing about it was we chatted and chatted over Zoom because of the uh, mm -hmm. situation, and. Uh, and, and then I'd send him things that I'd written down and he'd incorporate that and then he'd send things back that he'd written down and then we'd adjust that. So there was an enormous amount of toing and froing. Sure. And the idea was that we'd get the tone right and um, we had a very, we have a very similar sense of humour. Um, we see things in a fairly ironic way and, um, you know, in a sense, you, you, we take certain things seriously, but not everything. And so it, it was a it was a great pleasure actually working with somebody and going through all those memories and um, making some sense of it. Because um, to be perfectly honest, if I'd had to write it myself, it would probably have taken me about 10 years. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an arduous I, task. Oh, it's, it's enormous. I mean, it was an enormous task as it was uh, doing it. And it almost became a a, a, um, a thing about leaving what to leave out rather than what to put in because sure. there was so much stuff once I started to actually look back. And and I, really, I did really enjoy the sort of rather cathartic sort of uh, element of this. I just, because sometimes you get to a point in your life now, and I mean, I'm 72 years old now, so it's, there's a point where it's good to know how you've ended up where you are. Sure. And so you really have to put your story down in a way, even if it was just for the pleasure of one's own family in order for them to understand why they're where they are sure. with me. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, it's a very beautiful sentiment to think about that. You know, when, you know, you get to this point in your career and you've done so much um, and, and some of it obviously was probably a, quite a whirlwind, um, for this to be sort of a, a, an encapsulation of your life. You mentioned something in, in, in your answer there about the tone of the book. Is it when you're, when you're doing something like this, do you give a lot of thought to how people will perceive you as a person based on the stories? You know, I mean, I imagine anybody could spin somebody's career and make it more salacious to maybe sell more titles, sling some mud at band members, things like that uh, for the sake of sales. But do you look at it and say, you know, I, I really want people to look at John Ilsley as, you know, this type of human being. And I want to make sure we portray that in, in the writing of this. Uh, yes. I think a simple answer is yes. 
Um, I'd read a few. I, I actually went and read a few biographies before or autobiographies or whatever before I tackled this just to see how other people had approached sure. the subject. And you're quite right. They varied from being completely salacious to um, uh, some of them, well, I won't mention the names, but pretty much unreadable. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it incredibly repetitive, uh, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, that, that's kind of a byproduct, if you like, um, if you're lucky um, yeah. <laughs> um, or unlucky. Um, you know, it's, it was really more about um, what it was like for me in the situation. So I didn't really, to be honest, to answer the first part of your question, I didn't really worry about um, what people were going to think of me. I just put it down as the way that I thought I was and how I perceived what we were doing and 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 all the all the little bits and pieces on the way of course which there were n- numerous moments which um you you didn't want to put in because there'd be um a lot of people sort of upset yeah and this wasn't a book to upset people and and um try and get sales by saying horrible things about people because generally speaking there is i mean somebody said to me the other night other day you know did you really get on with everybody <laughs> when they'd read the book yeah and i said yeah pretty much you know i mean the thing you're involved in something which is a um a a, a real privilege if you like and i think you just have to remember that all the time working with mark was a privilege working with people like alan clark was a privilege Mm -hmm. you know on keyboards and and terry williams on drums and and pick with us i mean you know, you'd have to scratch yourself several times to find, you know, a, a more enjoyable uh, bunch of people to work with. Incredibly creative, very powerful, very confident. And as a consequence of that, you know, OK, there was a, a bit of fallout from now and again. But you're going to get that with with people you're living with literally every day yeah. of the week for many, many years. You're bound to get some fallout. It's a question of how then you deal with the fallout. Yeah, I think it, it. You know, people kind of perceive, you know, that a band is somehow different than really any situation with coworkers. And I guess it's a little more intense because you're living with people. But I mean, I, I don't name anybody who goes to work with four or five people that doesn't have a little, you know, run in once in a while with somebody they work with or gets irritated. Um, yeah, it's kind of a natural of thing. Um, of course, of course. You guys, yeah, I, you know, as yeah. as a band, really started out with pretty great success for a debut album for in that era a lot of bands you know in the 70s especially you know it was second third album that really started to gain traction you guys really sort of hit you know pay dirt with sultans of swing right out of the gate was that something you were kind of prepared for you know on a personal (laughs) level to to go from you know zero to you know 100 kilometers an hour right away like that? No, no, not at all. I mean, look, we we were somewhat taken by surprise, to be honest. I mean, I don't know why I'm continually surprised about most things in, in life concerning mm-hmm. the band, but, you know, it, it's, it's pleasantly surprised. And and um, no, I don't oh, We didn't really expect. I mean, the record company said to us right from the word go, here you are, here's a five-album deal, which is, you know, pretty usual in those days, very unusual now. Sure. But we don't really expect you to get going for, you know, two, three, four albums. We, we, we'll stay with you because we believe in you. Now, if somebody says that to you, you, you feel more confident about what you're going to be producing. You're not going to try, if you like, and join in with what everybody else is doing. You really stick to your own style. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing that the band uh, was naturally uh, capable of doing we just we stuck to our own style we didn't go with any particular fashion trends in music or whatever mm-hmm. and as a consequence of that i think we 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 stood out a bit from the from the crowd absolutely because we stuck to our guns we didn't we didn't go just to get radio plays the fact that it got on the radio uh, surprised us again you know i mean we would for this particular point in time, we were living in a council flat in South London, you know, on literally no money and just trying to get a gig whenever we could. And then suddenly, you know, this DJ that I knew vaguely put the 
you know, put the song on his radio show and all hell broke loose. Yeah, and it did. And it's amazing to look. I mean, it, had you guys not made Brothers in Arms, you still would have had a tremendous amount of platinum gold records worldwide, really. I mean, that it's something it's yeah. very neat to see because, you know, when you look at the performance of the debut album, you know, it wasn't just you, you'll see this a lot where a, an album will do great in the UK or it'll do great in Germany. But, you know, you had great numbers really worldwide um, mm. and really kept yeah. it going. But when when Brothers in Arms kind of exploded, you know, and, and really, at least in the United States, that was the impression. You guys, you know, we had heard you on kind of classic rock radio with, mm. you know, industrial disease and, and some things like that. But then, you know, the words I want my MTV came out of uh, Sting's mouth and all hell broke loose for your band. As far as, you know, the United States, you were everywhere. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing, hearing you guys. Was it how prepared at that point, was that more difficult to achieve that level of success versus, well, I think, you know, yeah, I, I think you've kind of answered the question yourself because we'd already had four pretty successful albums out mm-hmm. before brothers in arms. Uh, we'd, we'd sold copies all over the world and done sure. pretty well in the States. Um, but yeah, when yeah. that new album, when Brothers in Arms took off, did it feel like to you you were going into another gear as far as, you know, people outside of hotels and television coverage and things like that? Or, or was it yeah. pretty, you guys were pretty prepared for it at that point? Well, we'd done a lot of tours and we'd had quite a lot of attention from, if you're like, dare I say it, fans, you know, um, mm-hmm. you, 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 it's, it's quite difficult. Sometimes it's quite difficult dealing with the numbers of people who want to talk to you or want yeah. to have a piece of you, if, if you like. Sure. To, to say it rather cr- crudely. I mean, that, you know, fame is a difficult thing to deal with, I think. I mean, success, I'm fine with success, but fame yeah, which is really what we're talking about here is not an easy subject for me. It never has been for Mark either, mm-hmm. because you know to say it was always about the music is an obvious thing to say, but it was always about the band. It was always about you know getting getting the songs to sound great. And so we spent a lot of time after Love of a Gold tour, took a little bit of a break, and I did a solo album in that in that in that time in 1984. Because uh, I had written a few songs, and I, my first solo album came out then, and and then uh, we went back into rehearsals, and the group, the the songs that were Mark had Mark had written were so varied, you know. I mean, it was from Walk of Life to Brothers in Arms. I mean, you can't imagine two more extremes. But in a sense, that album represented probably the result of having four other albums out and a certain amount of confidence about how mm. to go and treat those songs. So we, we spent quite a lot of time before we actually flew to Montserrat, to George Martin studio, Air Studios in Montserrat. We spent a lot of time getting the songs in a shape where we thought they were worthy of recording. So we were quite prepared for this one. Um, and uh, well, we've always been quite prepared. We, we don't usually go into the studio and start writing, to be frank. I mean, that's a very expensive exercise. Sure. Um, but we were, I think we were we were kind of ready for the success. But I, I, I said, even then, look, who knows why certain albums, you know, sort of like rumors. Why, you know, why that? You know, mm-hmm. why Private Dancer by Tina Turner? Why the Eagles Hotel? You could you can you, this sort of you know. Pink Floyd, you know, uh, Dark Side. I mean, you know, how how do you you just don't know? You're just making another record, really, and some suddenly it captures people's imagination. But the thing I think to remember is that this was the birth of the CD. The digital re- revolution started then. MTV had hit, uh, had spread outside of the states, so that was a big thing. Combination of factors. You know, um, certain songs on the album captured people's imagination. And I mean, there was a few songs on there, I think, which will stand the test of time. I mean, it's a it's a fact. If you, it's like a painting, if you if you paint a good picture, people will be looking at it for a long time. And if you sure. write a good song, 
people will listen to it for a long time. Yeah, and I have to say that I mean, going back and, and you know, in preparation for this discussion, going through that album a few times, yeah. I think what stands out, you know, Money for Nothing and Walk of Life, I think are kind of ingrained in people's yeah. heads, you know, just to the repetition of hearing it so much. But, you know, some of the songs, you know, like just so romantic, you know, so far away, you know, that song yeah. is in, in yeah. it had to be. Uh, did you have a sense that this one might do a little better or is it like you said, just <laughs> another album? Well, I, I, I knew that we were working on something which was, I think, pretty special. I mean, sure. I have to say I, I didn't. I, it, 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 the, the quantity of, of people who bought the thing surprised me, but yeah. I knew we had a good album, and I knew it was a good follow-up to um, "Love Over Gold." Right. Um, and yeah, so I was I was quite confident about it, and the recording process had gone pretty well up until the time in Montserrat when the digital machine was that we first one I think people recorded on decided to lose half the drum tracks. Yikes. Yeah. That was quite a moment. It's and that was a moment. Recording. Yeah. yeah. So um and you know so we had to make a bit we had to make some decisions then which were very difficult because Terry Williams, who was the drummer from you know when Pick left and was a fantastic live drummer, mm-hmm. he he he'll admitted he wasn't he wasn't terribly comfortable in the studio. He found it quite difficult um on stage fantastic but you know he, he, he in some ways those those tracks dropping out of the digital machine made us rethink how we're yeah. going to do the album and so we decided to see if omar hakim was um free which he was and he came out and did the whole album in three days nice that's yeah that's when that you hit impressive. lightning in a bottle yeah that was yeah. impressive I have to say. <laughs> on on the book, you mentioned, you know, deciding what to leave out. Was was the process enjoyable enough that you'd consider, you know, kind of a part two? Or is that too no, much I work? Think, I think no, I don't I think there's I don't think there's a part two really, because I, I finish it off with where I am now. So um I'm not going to, there's nothing else to add apart from the fact that, you know, I'm still doing music myself and probably mm-hmm. p- people wouldn't find that quite as fascinating as the Dire Straits. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. I, I, I've seen a couple times where people, you know, kind of capture, you know, people's attention with the first book and try to do a second with, you know, anecdotal stories. And it never seems to quite capture the same magic. Yeah. Um, as I think, the, I think one's enough. I guess the inevitable question People, you know, I know I've spoken to Alan Clark, who was doing the Dire Straits Legacy. Do you foresee yeah. at any point playing with the other guys or any of the other guys in any kind of permutation of, of the original band? Well, no, the, the original band can only exist with Mark and I in it. You can't. I mean, I know the Dire Straits Legacy thing is a, mm-hmm. is one thing. And then one of the other old members of the band has started a thing called the Dire Straits Experience. Mm-hmm. Which you know is is fine. I mean, I, it, I, it's kind of it, it niggles me a bit, but not enough to 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 really bother me. And um, you know, they do it. They do a half decent version of things, but um, you know, it's it's fine. I mean, it, you, you know, if the if a band stops, that's why you've got you've, you've got twenty or thirty or maybe even forty Fleetwood Mac bands, you know, in various yeah. guises, you know. There's lots of there's an Australian Pink Floyd that play all over the place, and I mean it's just it's just the way it's what happens when bands stop playing together. They there's offshoots of all sorts of things going on. It's a bit of a lack of imagination, really. I mean, you know, I, when I go out, I play a few straight songs and I play my stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's the way I like to do it. But I don't think any of these guys are actually writing their own material. They're just living off a legacy. Yeah. So in fact, actually. They should call it. They should call it. They should call it "Living Off Dire Straits Legacy." <laughs> That's what they should call it. Yeah, and you, you'd be surprised. I mean, how many bands do that kind of legacy stuff for bands that are still touring? I mean, I, I don't know what the UK is like, but I imagine if, if you look within a ten-mile radius of where anybody lives in this country, you could find a Rolling Stones tribute band playing, yeah. uh, you know, almost weekly. Um, I, I see yeah. you. You've got some uh, live dates coming up. Um, you, yeah. you, you meant you'll be doing most of the eight record, or, or how do you kind of balance your set list? 
Well, this this, this particular tour is coming up was actually booked two years ago before the album was even okay. um, thought of. And I was doing a little run of um, uh, things I call uh, The Life and Times of Dire Straits, which is me and my one of my ex-managers talking about the past with videos and um, uh, photographs okay. on a big on a big screen, and uh, you know just talking about the, how the band got together first of all, and then talking about the songs, and then I get three of my other musicians to come on and we play the stuff acoustically. Okay, uh, which is very cool actually, and yeah, um, so that's, fun. that's just a, that's just a separate thing, and then I play a few of my songs in in, in there as well, but you know so. It's it's you know the, the Dire Straits tag doesn't really go away. Sure, you know it's there, it's there, and I'm very pleased that it's there because I've discovered that people really like to hear the songs again. You know, um, played by somebody who was in the original band. Yeah, and and in all fairness, I mean you've earned that the right to have that. You know, I mean it's some some artists I think try to shy away from that. You know, when they they leave a band that you know don't want to do it some cling to it um maybe too much but you know you've certainly you know you've been there for every note of every record um you know so yeah and i think i, I think i also know how this should be played sure um and i've got some really lovely musicians who've which have, i've been playing with now for sort of six or seven years sure and they're great players um and so, you know, if for me, it's a pleasure to go out just for, I just, I go on little short tours every time, every now and again, maybe two or three a year. Um, it, and I really love it. I really enjoy it. Will you, um, at those events, will you have the book for sale? If people want to get a copy. Oh yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I know the, the book is readily available in the United States and John, I want to thank you so much. Uh, I, appreciate your time and talking about the book and, and thank you even more for writing the book because it's, it's a great um, kind of encapsulation of, of, you know, the happenings of a, a band that I think, you know, a lot of people in the United States, you know, want to know more about for more than just the videos and, and you know, the, the airplay. So thank you for doing that. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure. Very nice to talk to you. All right. A big thank you to John Ilsley of Dire Straits. Again, the new album eight, is available now. It's the Roman numeral eight. It's available on John Illsley.com. That's I L L S L E Y.com. And also his new book is available now. It's called My Life in Dire Straits by John Illsley. Uh, it's available in hardback. Uh, really cool read. Kind of walks you through a band that I think many of us in America, especially, uh, we knew of the hits, we knew of the videos, uh, you know, the I Want My MTV Money for Nothing. Um, Walk of Life videos that were in our ears constantly, uh, Sultans of Swing, a lot of great songs, Industrial Disease. Um, but I know personally, growing up in the 80s, you know, kind of coming into music, uh, not really knew much about the members of the band. You know, we knew the guy with the guitar and the headband, uh, you know, Mark Knopfler, obviously, but that was about it. Um, but really, a global, global phenomenon. Uh, so, a great chance to learn more about that band. Uh, and, and we'll say I highly recommend going back and checking out some of their studio albums. A lot of really amazing music uh, outside of just the hits with Dire Straits. Uh, one of those bands that I think, you know, you knew the greatest hits, but go back and learn the catalog. Like Thin Lizzy is another band where, you know, there's some amazing gems of songs you never heard. Uh, so, John Ellsley, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, turning our attention now to Mr. Andy Timmons. Andy been a solo artist for a long time had been on steve Vai's record label to give you just a, a bit of an endorsement in his playing uh, he's got a new album out april 1st it's called electric truth um it's got i think some amazing varieties of music in it uh, andy just such an accomplished guitarist um there's some funk and blues and r&b and rock uh, Hendrixy, sort of Eric Johnson stuff, as we talk about in the interview. So, uh, invite you to check that out. Let's get into that interview with Mr. Andy Timmons. Thank you. 
to Iron City Rocks. We have Mr. Andy Timmons on the line. How you doing, Andy? Hey, John. I'm doing great, man. Doing doing okay. Hope you get up there in Pittsburgh. Yeah, awesome to get a chance to talk to you. You are going to be releasing an album here in what seemed like a long time ago when I first heard about it, but April is coming up very quickly. It seems like this <laughs> yeah, year is flying. Uh, it's flying by already, isn't it? Yeah. I'm sure you're probably chomping at the bit to get this out. Electric Truth. Can you, can you talk a little bit about you know what's kind of different from your perspective on this album? Yeah, it was basically the, the, the fun for me was that I I, I did it with uh, with Josh Smith at the helm. And Josh is a really great guitar player friend of mine, who uh, who I who I met just by I'd been seeing his videos on YouTube and just really became a fan of his playing and. Uh, through a mutual friend, got his number and just called him up just to say, "Hey, man, I really dig what you're doing," and and ended up, uh, you know, establishing a friendship. And he had just finished a recording studio um, out in L.A. and invited he just invited me, "Hey, man, come out and record." I'm like, all right, that sounds like a great idea. It's just one of those things where, you know, you meet a lot of people along the way that might say, "Hey, sure. let's get together." But this this really felt like a great opportunity. Um, and so we kind of talked about it, and we decided that I would just come out as the artist and. He and I would write some tunes together, and I would write some songs. And but I wanted, I, I really wanted him to produce and to, and to kind of put the band together, so it wouldn't be another Andy Timmons band record. It would be just something of a different flavor, mm-hmm. you know, being more influenced by his kind of. You know, every time I saw him uh, playing live, I just I really lo- I loved the sound of his band. I loved the this the basic direction he he was in. So I wanted a little bit of flavor in that for a record of mine. And, so luckily he, he agreed, and um, that's what I really enjoy about it is that it's a little funkier and bluesier than my normal approach. And, and, and the band that he picked, which is just incredible, rhythm section that he uses yeah. a lot on his, on his own records. Uh, Lamar Carter on drums, uh, Travis Carlton on bass, and uh, and Darren Johnson on keyboards just made it so easy to come in and put the songs together. We recorded basically the whole the band stuff in two days. And then I, I hung around for this. This happened, I should say, this happened at the beginning of uh, 2020. I, because I was going to be out there in Anaheim for the NAM show, an annual right. music convention uh, in, in January of every month. I said, well, I'll come out a few days early. That's what we agreed to do. And then I was going to come back in March to finish whatever needed to be finishing up. And of course, mm-hmm. nobody went anywhere in March right. of 2020. That's when everything kind of shut down. So that, therefore, that's why you're just now hearing it in April of uh, 22. So yeah, it's been kind of sitting for a while, so I'm really anxious to get it out there just because it's, it's, it's a fun record for me, just because it's a little bit of different flavor. Did you have a lot of the songs, you know, kind of sketched out or or, or do you kind of just improvise? You know what you're playing. You have some chord ideas in mind, some changes to play over, and, and you just kind of go where the, yeah. the inspiration takes you. I mean, yeah, every record and every song could be kind of different. In this way, I might have had some songs slightly demoed, where I would have at least done a rough recording, so the band had an idea of what I wanted. But some right. songs were just purely, you know, here's here's my guitar riff. You know, what do you hear? You know, and right. we, we would uh, work on the arrangements together, and Josh was real good about that. Um, so yeah, there were some things, you know, a couple things I'd written that were already kind of in in the in the in the works. But then when I, when the idea of, of working with Josh came about, that's when I wrote the the main part of EWF because I was thinking right. about him. He plays the Telecaster a lot, so I love the I love the sound of that guitar. So I wrote a couple tunes with that sound in mind, and uh, that that kind of brought out different flavors too. Anytime you pick up a different guitar, yeah, it's going to have something in it that's going to inspire you to to play something different. And then, but yeah, but again, playing, you know, getting in the studio with such a great band, it uh, it really makes things so easy when you tr- you can trust their instincts to just let them do what they do naturally, and it's going to be better than anything you could think of, you know. Yeah, Did, any intimidation? I mean, I look at the the people that the band played with. I mean, Darren's yeah. name kind of jumps yeah. off the page. I was actually just watching on PBS yeah. over the weekend a, a documentary on Miles Davis, and, and you know, yeah. Darren spent. You know the latter part of Miles' career. Um, did Did you ever yeah. see a world? I mean, I, it's kind of funny to think about it. You know, the guitarist of Danger Danger goes on to work with a guy from Miles Davis. You, you don't yeah. see that scenario playing out. I mean, any intimidation with working some of these? You know, these guys are kind of heavyweights. Honest, they're heavyweights, but I've I've played with Robin Ford and Mike Stern, who are also in Miles' band. Yeah. So to be honest, at the, at the time that I joined Danger Danger, that same time I was offered the gig in uh, Tower of Power. Okay. So I was I was already down that path. When I got the call from Danger Danger, I would have preferred a call from Miles. 
Yeah. Music, music, musically, I knew that's where I was headed. Yeah. I'm, and again, I'm not, I'm not comparing myself to to any of those guys. I'm just saying that, yeah. If anybody only knows me from Danger Danger, they'd be they'd be surprised what I'd done before that. As Absolutely. Far as the uh, the kind of the the versatility and the you know, the education. I went to University of Miami for a couple of years, and just some of the greatest players on the planet when I was down there and just really, really inspiring. You know, I was a solid rock player by then, but I was from the age of 16, I was, I was, I was learning jazz and, and, and heavily into it. And that all, and that all influences the rock playing, you know, that even though when I'm playing straight ahead rock, it's going to have a different flavor to it because of that influence of all the great jazz musicians that have come before us. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, but there's always, Oh, and, and, you know, Travis Carlton, Larry's son. Yeah. You know, who played? He plays with Larry Carl. He plays. With, yeah, I mean, it's and having a great guitar player as my producer um, yeah. was also. It's like, yeah, that guy can kick my ass at any second here. You know, it was. It was. It, but it's, I love being in those situations. It's always, you know, it's always good to have any kind of you know extra bar to to rise to. Yeah. Right? You know, absolutely. I I, I I spent some I spent so many years with Steve Lukather, and here's a guy that. Yeah, I played with everybody from Townsend and back, and and Steve Lukather, who's probably my biggest influence. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's anytime you can be in a room with somebody that's that's that knows what's up, it's it's, it's good for you because it's a good, it's a great pressure to have, you know. Yeah, it is. I mean, it even you know when when you listen to to your playing, one of the things I love about it is is that you you can tell you really put the melodies of the song first. Uh, you know, it, you know, not you know, I, I don't want necessarily put it in the same genre of, of Miles Davis, but when I listen to your approach right. to, to your phrasing and things, you know, it reminds me of where he's going, where you're not just showing off. You know, we know right. you have the chops to, to blow out notes and, <laughs> and do that kind of, you know. And there are guitar players yeah. that do that, you know, that it's just a million miles an yeah. hour. But to sometimes some of these songs on, on this album, you, you know, they're slower songs that you you really have a chance to, to shine with the melody, like... When words yeah, fail, thank you, man. You know, it, it's um... yeah. Thank you. I, I, you know, as as I've gone through my career, it always seems like the ballads are the ones that I really, I, I, I feel the most from. You know, I love playing high energy stuff. I love playing the funky stuff. But it's when you have the the ballads, and if you can write a nice melody, I that's that's true joy for me, and that, and that tends to be the the most cathartic emotional content that I can put together. So. Um, if those are resonating with with folks, then I'm then I'm honored by that. But I love to I love those tunes, you know, like like Grace and When Words Fail and, mm -hmm. and things like that. It's uh, it's a lot of fun for me. Yeah, I made a couple of notes when I was listening. Grace actually it was when I was like, boy, I, I I felt you almost channeling, uh, you know, kind of an Eric Johnson sort of thing to your playing. You yeah, know, where it's, it's well. Yeah, he, I mean, Eric is certainly one of my biggest heroes and influences. You know, he, and it comes, but there's there's a good amount of Jimmy in there too, which yeah. is in Eric's playing. Yeah. You know, and I, uh, in fact, well, that tune I actually wrote. That's one song I had laying around that I hadn't recorded with my own band yet when I when I hooked up with Josh. But I'd gone to see one of those. Um, in fact, Eric was there. I went to see one of those um, guitar, you know, Hendrix Experience concerts where it's right. all these different guitar players. On the road, but the, but in the rhythm section was Billy Cox. Yeah, and of course Eric Johnson was playing, and, and uh, gosh, who else was Zach Wild and some just tremendous players. Um, but I was really excited to see Billy, and I got a chance to meet him and his wife before the show. They were they were just hanging at the merch table, you know, as you walk in. There's freaking Billy Cox. So yeah, I got to I got to go hang with them, and you know, have him sign my band a Gypsies record. I'm I'm a fan, but I the longer I talked to him, then I really started chatting with his wife Brenda and they were just the sweetest people and I you know in the conversation that came up that they've been married like over 50 years That's and now that I now that I'm now that I'm married 25 I always love to ask older married couples like well what's the secret what makes it work for you guys and she she looked at me and gave me this sly look and just said grace <laughs> And so I went with, the, and I knew exactly what she meant without saying anything else, right? Yeah. And and so I went home, and with that feeling in mind, obviously Jimmy on my mind, and having met Billy and Brenda, that that song kind of just came out that night. But that was, you know, maybe four or five, six years ago. So now right. I'm finally able to get that tune, and I sent it to, you know, I sent it to to Billy and Brenda, and they really loved the tune and, and said some really nice things about it. So that was that was success for me right there, just to. 
to write a tune in their honor and for them to dig it. And that's yeah. I feel very honored by that. You know? Yeah. If it never saw the light of anybody else's, you know, it never yeah. saw anybody else's ears, uh, you've accomplished something if Billy Cox that, gives you that. that exa- exactly. So that I felt really, really nice about that. And, yeah. yeah, they could be sweet. Could be sweeter people. I really, really enjoy getting to hang with them, and I hope I get to get to hang with them again. You know? Yeah. Now you had Corey sing a few songs. Um, yeah. When, when you're doing songs with vocals, I mean, do you kind of is kind of a different approach to how you, you know, obviously your rhythm playing is going to be slightly different, and you know your leads yeah. are maybe structurally. Is that something you enjoy? more working with yeah. a vocalist or is it just a different experience for you yeah it's just different I, I i really enjoy it all equally whether i'm the featured melody you know me being kind of the singer with the guitar or if mm-hmm. it's an actual singer i i really enjoy both roles equally and for those tunes i don't i'd written you know i'd written them to the songs and the melodies and part part of the lyrics and i i had Corey come in and help write some of the lyrics and in the I sing on some of my records, but boy, I, I just love Corey's voice so much. And I yeah. met him a few years back. He was working with a, another guitar player here in in uh, my town of McKinney named uh, Nick Knurk. And they had done a duo record together. And Corey's voice sounded so great on it. Man, I'd like to him, him to you know try singing these tunes, and it just worked out great. Yeah, they did. I did a really good job. They did come out pretty cool. Um, do you plan on you. kind of taking these songs on the road now that things are hopefully getting a little back to normal? <laughs> I mean, they, say that, they, they, you know, they, watching the news every yeah. day, it could totally change in a week. But I yeah. know, I know. Well, yeah, I, I do. I, I, I'm not sure if the Electric Truth, you know, record will be toured, but I'll certainly be. I'm, I'm starting to do gigs now, at least locally, with the Andy Timmons band. And I think we'll, we'll absorb some of this material into that mm-hmm. band. And then maybe maybe form a group depending on how this record does to get out. But I've been a little I've been a little hesitant to, to book anything lengthy yet till till everybody can be comfortable. It seems like we're we're getting there pretty soon now. So yeah, it, it does seem you know. You, you, of course, I remember it seems like a, you know last year it was kind of the same thing. We kind of went through this phase where everybody announced the big tours. You know the, the you know the yeah, arena exactly. tours, the stadium tours. You know, literally, yeah, and then. Yeah everybody had to bring it back in and, and they don't think fans realize how much time effort and money goes into to laying all this out and then have to, to pull it all back is is devastating so it's maybe right. you're smarter right. to to wait yeah i i uh yeah eric johnson just went through that he had a tour booked and had to had to pull out maybe a month or so ago and he made an announcement on social media and you could just tell he was he was so bummed about it it was very hard for him to to have to make that decision, but at that time, Omicron was still kind of ramping up, so we had to be careful. And sure enough, we had, I had a couple of shows booked in um, at the Iridium in New York with mm-hmm. my band in the beginning of February, and we ended up having to back out. And good thing we did because I got sick right before that. I got oh. sick, sick at the end of January, and it took me it took me a month to really get over it. It was it really held on. Like some people have, you know, uh, symptoms of like a bronchial thing, you know, like yeah. a bronchitis, and that's what that's what I was feeling. So. I'm yeah. just now kind of getting back up to speed, so you know I think I think Eric was smart to put it on hold because one one band or crew member gets sick and it can tank the whole tour. Yeah, I mean unless even worse, right? unless you're you know to the size of you know a touring organization almost where you can afford to have two bass players and you know a two you know a drummer right. in reserve or you know, yeah. you want to go out and play with your MacBook and, and your guitar. You know, it's like the, <laughs> Yeah, well, that's what I did for the whole shutdown, well, the whole pandemic. I was home. I did 140 some odd performances on a, on a platform called Stage It. You know, yeah. I just got got savvy quickly with how to, you know, get good audio and video for broadcasts, and I got to stay home and and still had you know folks that came to see me virtually, and so I was happy to to be able to do that. But I had a lot of experience, you know, playing with my MacBook, you know, from yeah. doing lots of clinic tours over the years for Ibanez and Mesa Boogie. Right. So I was comfortable. I was comfortable doing it. So I felt pretty fortunate that I had that ability to to still get out and play for people because that, that's a, it was a saving saving grace for me, no doubt. Yeah, I have to admit, is you know someone who who I love all kinds of music. There were some real upsides to a lot of the you know I don't want to say the pandemic because that's a that's a tough thing to say, but a lot of well, artists of course, kind of I know what you mean. You know, kind of a, a lot of artists kind of brought you into their world with a camera and gave you some you know what were you know obviously televised but intimate type performances that you 
you know, you wouldn't necessarily get to see. So there was some, you know, upsides right. to that. Um, for for those who were interested in, in learning the instrument, you have the guitarexperience.net. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, yeah. like, your approach to teaching? You know, obviously, you know, when I listen to your playing, you've got kind of a different thing going. Like I said, you don't necessarily, it's not all just fireworks and pyrotechnics on the guitar. There's a lot of, <laughs> of musicality to it. Is Thank that, you so much, man. Is yeah, I, I, I what I what I really do I I really do enjoy teaching, and it's something that's just kind of come later in life for me, you know, because I've been playing for fifty plus years, just about because mm-hmm. I started when I was five. But um, early on, teaching was a little laborious, and maybe I didn't feel like I had that much to offer earlier in my career. What I, I probably did, but but over the years, I started uh, when I got asked to give a lesson or something. I I started finding that I really did enjoy. You know, getting to getting a chance to kind of break down how I play. There's some of these things that I've, I've just been doing naturally for so many years, mm-hmm. but to then but to then have the ability to you know, communicate those things. So I started mm-hmm. doing some lessons for a company called True Fire, and it does some really great, yeah. uh, you know, lesson content for a subscription site. And as as I was doing, this, I said, "Man, I could do this on my own." And so I've been going I've been going through my entire catalog. And I, and, I, and I put up a new song every month, Song of the Month. And uh, in fact, the, the Song of the Month this month is EWF, the first single from mm-hmm. Electric Truth. So I, I break down, you know, the gear that I use, you know, the techniques of recording. And I have a guy, I, I play, play it on camera so people can see how I'm playing it. And I, a friend of mine in Sao Paulo uh, transcribes everything. So then everything's written out. But then I'll spend another 90 minutes on camera going through the entire song is showing every note, every part, and then kind of explaining how it is, why it is, you know, and, and, and how to do it. So, but it's a lot of, it's been a lot of fun for me. And, and I learned from myself, that, you know, some of these things I'll have to break down and explain. I can see, well, that's a nugget of an idea that I could extrapolate to a much higher degree. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's what we're all dealing with as musicians. If they're, if you're interested in evolving and continuing to grow, that's the key is just finding these little nuggets along the way. So people can either learn my entire song if they're inclined, or they can just figure out and look at one little element of it. And that could be enough to open new doors and and Mm -hmm. help their playing grow in in a really big way. Does it help your playing grow? I mean, as you break this down, I mean, you you know, a lot of guys will play stuff and they'll record it and won't ever play it again, or maybe will you know, play a yeah. version of it live, but maybe not. To the, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, you know, some people never play it the same way twice. Is it this level of breaking down of your own technique insightful yeah. for you? It's huge because, like you say, I have I'm I'm having to go in and figure out what I did. Mm-hmm. You know, some some there would have been some recordings where I might have had it planned out and worked it out, and those things might be easier for to figure out. But if it's something that I was improvising or something I might have played 20, 30 years ago, right. you know, it may take me a minute to figure out what the hell was I doing. And therefore, it, it, it introduces me to my younger self, and it's, it's only natural that you're going to evolve and your playing is going to change, but to go back and revisit something might remind you of something, oh, I like that. Yeah. I, should, I, should, I should pick that back up. So, you know, I'm, I'm constantly finding little bits, like I say, that, oh, I could, I could use that idea and I can see where this, you know, that's what I try to help the students realize is that you don't have to be overwhelmed with all this material. Just find one or two things you like. And then I teach, I also teach a lot about how to use that idea, but then in different ways, you know, in different parts of the scale and different parts of the neck. Because there's so, there's so much information that you can, <laughs> you can get from one little idea. Yeah. So I'm teaching people, but also how to teach themselves. Yeah, I, I know from interviewing people who were doing, you know, the, the 20th, 30th anniversary tours of some of their classic albums. Yeah. You know, there's probably some track on, you know, on albums you played that you may never have played. You know, you might have played it in 1989. You know, yeah, at a right. studio, and that right, was it. Yeah, right. And then you come back, yeah. and you're like, you know. <laughs> Certain agency well, exactly. wants us to tour on this stuff, and I got to learn this song. What the hell was I doing? Um, that's, that's that's what happens when I've tried to you know recall some of the Danger Danger stuff. Yeah, you know, or even even early stuff from my first couple of solo records. It's, it was just a different guy. Yeah. You know, similar influences, no doubt. But yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot to uh, to check out. Well, fantastic, Andy. I want to thank you again so much. It's been an absolute oh, pleasure. The new album, you. April. First, I believe, is the street date. April 1st, that is correct. 
Okay. No April Fools. It's actually happening. Yeah. And you've so, got you've got CDs, I believe, available on your website. Um, and then the yeah, guitar. There's a, there's a pre a pre sale yeah, now that you can go to AndyTemis.com. Yeah. Cool. And then hopefully we'll see you out with the band uh, doing some live shows here before too long. Uh, We'd love to, yeah. We'd love to get a chance. And for those interested, guitarxperience.net for the the breakdown of playing. Well, thank you so much, Andy. It's been a pleasure, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. John, likewise. I hope to see you in Pittsburgh real soon, man. All right, a big thank you to Andy Timmons again. Electric Truth will be out April 1st, so... By the time you hear this podcast, it very well may be available. You can check out his website, andytimmons.com. I invite you to check out really a lot of his material, unless you're familiar with it. I was really, really pleased uh, to hear what I heard on this new album, and it made me really go back and enjoy some of the old stuff. So I invite you to check that out. Uh, we're going to turn now to an interview uh, conducted recently. I will apologize in advance. I was very much in the throes of bronchitis when I did the following interview uh, with Mr. Damien Darlington. Damien has been a guest on the show. I can't honestly count how many times uh, he and I have spoken. Uh, He is the musical director, the founder of Brit Floyd. Uh, For those not familiar, that's a full-scale production of Pink Floyd music that did tours the world, quite honestly. Um, they many, many years have started their tour in Pittsburgh. Uh, this year they're coming after about a month of being on the road, so it's going to be a very well-oiled machine uh, by the time it comes to the Benetton Center on the 15th and 16th of April. They'll be doing two shows, Friday and Saturday night. Uh, as you hear my voice, I will tell you that it will be sold out, so if you want to go to the, either one of these shows, um, you should be on trustarts.org. Uh, picking those tickets up soon if you want to see the show because it's it's sold out. As I mentioned to Damien in the interview, I, I was kind of going back and doing some looking at Pink Floyd's touring history in Pittsburgh. And on the metal album, they had played the Syria Mosque, which held about 3,400 or so. Uh, and they just did that one show. Uh, the Brit Floyd shows will be two nights about 2,400 seats apiece. So in in essence, they will be playing to more fans in Pittsburgh on 2022 doing a tribute, uh, so to speak, than Pink Floyd did on the Real Metal album tour. So obviously Pink Floyd went on to play stadiums here in Pittsburgh. So not saying that Pink Floyd or Brit Floyd is somehow superior to Pink Floyd, but just a, a reference to the number of people that enjoy the music is phenomenal. And the production is first rate. So, without further ado, let's talk to Mr. Damien Darling. Would you like to say something before you leave? Perhaps you'd care to state exactly how you feel. We say goodbye before we said hello. I hardly even like you. I should. to get a chance to talk to you i know we were lucky enough in pittsburgh to see the 2021 or i'm sorry the 2020 show um before you kind of had to put the brakes on the tour uh and then uh you, you've been through once since and, and you know kind of back is is it kind of business as usual for you guys at this point or, or are there still a lot of extra precautions you've got to put in 
Um, it, it's it's more back to being business as usual than it has been, but nonetheless, there are still, you know, there are still sort of things that you uh, we have to be a little bit careful of. There's still some testing going on, all that sort of stuff. And you know, when it comes to meet and greets and things like that that we do at the concerts, we we have to do those in a bit of a different format still. So, but for the most part, for the most part, thankfully, it's getting back to normal. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of nice, and I think a lot of people really have come to look forward to you guys coming in you know usually it's kind of march you know but this year in april so hopefully it won't snow when you get here um but it, can you talk a little bit about what you've done with the set this year i know you guys kind of you, you yeah obviously have to play the the quote hits but um what have you kind of mixed in for us this year um we we still i mean you know we 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 started off in 2020 with a, a set um, built around uh, the, the the track echoes you know mm-hmm. 20 plus minute sort of epic track and, and and although we got to do a little bit of touring last summer it wasn't very much at all so we we right. we, just, we took the decision that we would carry on sort of um having that as the centerpiece of the set but we've also changed a few so two or three songs as well um um uh, to to make things a little different from what what was what we were playing last summer just for the for the month of touring that we managed to do last yeah. summer um, you know so there's there's a, there's a few extra tracks come uh, come into the set list um, you know, compared with what people would have seen uh, 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 you know six months ago or so is it difficult uh, you know obviously you guys doing the, the scale of tour you're doing with the amount of production this isn't you know six guys doing a, a small club tribute you know there's a lot of those kind of tributes that you know every city i'm sure has a thousand pink floyd and fleetwood mac um from a business standpoint though has it been is it been tough to try to kind of balance you know you obviously want to keep the musicians keep the continuity but you can't you know generate income because you're not able to get out on the road I mean, obviously, it's been a difficult two years, um, uh, you know, for for all of us, uh, but particularly in, you know, people in the entertainment industry, that it's it, it, it hit it's hit that sector pretty hard because you know if you can't get out there and do a concert, you can't get out on the stage and in front of the public, you know, that's and and that's what you're you're about. That's what you do as a musician. Then you know, it, it's it's tough to uh, sort of uh, make ends meet. Otherwise, sure. You know, so, and we're we're very much a live band. You know, yeah. that, that's what we are. We're, we're playing the, the music of Pink Floyd. You know, yes, we, you know, we have a little bit of merchandise, but you know, the important thing is getting out there on stage and, sure. and, and playing the music in front of an audience. So yeah, and it's it's, it's, it's obviously wonderful as as I mentioned earlier that things are getting back to normal. Now. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned merchandise, and obviously, I mean, Pink Floyd probably sells more merch in, in any Walmart than most bands do on a on a full tour. You know, and then. You know, it is, so that makes it kind of tough. Um, I, I did notice one thing. You're doing metal from Echoes. And I remember seeing a brilliant performance of that on the 2020 show. And I, and I was kind of doing a little bit of research, and I realized when Pink Floyd played in Pittsburgh on that, you know, on the metal tour, they played a, a building that's unfortunately no longer there that is about 3,700-seat capacity. And looking at this, you will actually play to more fans over the two nights in Pittsburgh than, than Pink Floyd did on that tour. So it's... It's kind of it speaks, I think, very much to the scope and the scale and the popularity of the music. Do you have a sense of why why Pink Floyd's music endears so much? I, it's 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 difficult to sort of uh, you know p- put your finger on it precisely, but it, it does see, it certainly seem to be the case that that Pink Floyd's music, you know, compared with some other uh, acts and artists of, of, of that vintage, it, it seems to endure. Um, you know, more successfully, in the, and the, the, there seems to be sort of new generations discovering it, and and, uh, and coming along to to our concerts as well. You know, because obviously they can't experience a Pink Floyd concert. It's a long time since they've been able to experience yeah. a Pink Floyd concert. Yes, they can still go and see Roger Waters, and maybe maybe David Gilmore will do another tour. But you know, we're we're the next best thing. You know that that, that these sort of new generations of Pink Floyd fans are going to get when it comes to experiencing Pink Floyd music live. Yeah, we we've actually been blessed. Um, Roger will be debuting his tour in the United States in Pittsburgh in July, and then we, we're actually getting a show with Nick Mason, which was postponed, but yeah. it's they're going to be making that up. So it's really, I think, an awesome year for fans of the band. You know, and. and you know, there's no shortage of people to come out to see your show, and, and that's it's 
it's really a nice tribute, and you guys do it on such a, a amazing scale. When when you're not on the road, you know, obviously you've got the business of kind of dreaming all this up and worrying about lighting and rigging and things like that. But do you kind of have to step away from Pink Floyd's music at any point to not kind of burn out on it, or is it something that you can still, you know, as much as you play it, that you can go enjoy it as a fan? I can, you know, remarkable as it may seem, after playing this music professionally for almost three decades now, mm. I can still enjoy it as a fan. I mean, I, 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 it's inevitable to a certain extent that you sort of, uh, you analyse it perhaps mm. a bit too much when you're listening to it. You yeah. Know, it's sort of, you're comparing, you know, you're thinking, oh yeah, yeah, maybe the way I play that solo has drifted just a little bit and I need to re-listen to the original, you know. There's a bit of that goes on, but but still, you know, I get a kick out of listening to the music, you know, uh, very definitely so. Um, I, I don't feel burnt out yet, put it that way. And after, right. I think after three decades, I would have... Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> pretty committed. Do you, do you ever get, like, fans who kind of, you know, it, back when you could do the meet and greet, I know you guys used to come out to the merch table. Do you get, like, every once in a while, just kind of a crotchety fan who's going to, you know, you were using the Mixolydian scale and he was doing that in the Ionian scale or something like that? you know, kind of critiquing of your playing, or are people pretty pretty chill? You, you don't. You, you don't tend to get that, you know, uh, uh, sort of face-to-face uh, in in the sort of environment you just described. You get the, odd, the occasional comment on a YouTube, uh, yeah. bit, you know, videos that we post on our YouTube channels, you know, and, and so sometimes people may have a point, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, but uh, you know, you don't. We don't hear too much criticism, which is wonderful, you know, to to to, to know and to experience. Yeah, I think uh, you know, from from having experienced it myself several times now, I think you know, you guys give a very high level product. Obviously, it's it's not Pink Floyd at you know this local football stadium kind of tour, but it's that's not something that's going to happen. You know, I, I just can't see that. You know, with as many digs as they take at each other in the media you know you just it's not going to happen in our lifetime i don't think so that um you know and that's what i think people really respond to is that you do a very faithful sincere representation of the music you know and it's not like you jumped on the the tribute band bandwagon you know you guys have been doing this for so long and at such a high level this is really i think uh you know is as good as it gets when it comes to this sort of thing so um, I want to thank you for your time. Again, you'll be here on the 15th, 16th of Pittsburgh doing your usual Friday, Saturday night. Um, you get to wake up Easter morning in Pittsburgh if you're not catching the bus out that night. So we wish you safe travel and, and can't wait to see you when you get in town, man. Well, really looking forward to come back to coming back to Pittsburgh. It's a, it's a bit of a home from home from a, for us. We we very often we start the, yeah. the tour in Pittsburgh and and do our sort of pre-production there. So. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great place to be. Fantastic. Damien, we'll, we'll catch you in a little over three weeks, man. Take care. Okay. That about wraps up this episode of Iron City Rocks. A big thank you to Mr. Damien Darlington and Britt Floyd again, April 15th and 16th. Uh, they will be at the Benetton Center. Two shows, guaranteeing sellout. Get your tickets now. Also, um, Andy Timmons, his new album, Electric Truth, highly recommended, will be out April 1st. Uh, you can head over to andytimmons.com for pre-orders and, and different bundles. And then John, John Ilsley of Dire Straits, his new album, Eight, is available now. His book is available now, so you can check those out. And hopefully we'll see John uh, coming stateside to do some live music here in the future. Also want to mention um, we've got a ton of concerts coming into the Pittsburgh region. So if you do not follow us already, ironcityrocks.com. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter are all Iron City Rocks. We keep you abreast of all the concert announcements. Uh, We'll be pleased to be bringing Wasp, personally involved with that show, uh, coming to the Palace in in Greensburg in November. Uh, Blackie Lawless and company will be in town to do a show, so we're very excited about that. So we'll get tickets to that before it sells out. I can tell you in the 12 or 13 years we've been doing this show, I'm not sure Wasp has been in Pittsburgh in that time, so it's very exciting to get them back uh, and a very rare opportunity. So, you know, a lot of shows you see every year, every two years come to town, and I know we're glad right now to see anything. It's awesome to have the return of live music, but Wasp might be one you want to circle 
just because that comes around as, about as much as Haley's comments. So check that out. We want to thank you so much for listening. You can send us comments at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. If you have anything, until next time, thank you so much.